You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Matt and uh, oh, this is probably going to be quite a lengthy introduction. And I am going to attempt to take you out of your comfort zone. <laughs> really? It's not yeah. going to be another nude podcast, is it? Oh, I, yeah, but that would be putting you into your comfort zone, wouldn't it? It is standard. Yeah. The most comfortable thing, surely, is what's under your clothes, not what's on top of the thing that's under your clothes. Do you say that? Is that your chat up line? Not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> Before we do the introduction, yes. Well, in very brief, what we're going to be talking about tonight is the thing that I brought up at the end of the podcast we did a few weeks ago with David Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And well, I'll get to that. Okay. But before we do, and this is out now, or it will be by the time this podcast goes out. It's not actually out now yet, as we're recording. But in the post, I got a copy of the from Who Dares Publishing. Mm-hmm. The key to time art of Colin Howard, yeah, which is a thing that they have done, which is basically art prints of Colin Howard's six VHS covers for the uh, for the uh, VHS releases of the six key to time stories. Mm-hmm. So you have like a little booklet and bits and pieces like that in there, yeah. art prints in A four of the six covers. And it's all packaged together a, in yeah. like a book type. Thing. So there, there are things in there, but we're not going to see what the things are in there because you're not going to take the cellophane off the cover. I don't take the cellophane <laughs> off. So, so I'm admiring this white book that's sealed by cellophane, imagining the artwork that's in there. Well, I'll have to go online to look at the artwork that's in there and imagine it being in there, but, but we'll never see it. Oh, I don't know, you know, I'm not a person who leaves things in their cellophane. I mean, I'm, I'm with you, I think. I don't know. It's a bit like Schrodinger's cat. I don't you know. know what's in there, you can see it and it's on the internet, but it's there's an aura behind the original prints. But you've still got that aura because you're close to them. But you can still see them elsewhere. <laughs> so it's kind of like knowing you, that you possess them is enough. Actually seeing them. Well, possibly. Because I don't have anywhere currently where I can put them on the wall. Mm-hmm. Mount them or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I may leave... Oh, I'm going to leave it just for now. Is it is... Mount them in the biblical sense. But from <laughs> looking at it from the outside, and I've seen it's, the publicity stuff, right. it's a gorgeous looking set. Yes, it would be. Yeah. <laughs> this, I mean, is, this is... A... Well, we've got the calendar. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, you weren't here when we got the calendar out. No. Me and Simon. No. Yeah. Simon and I yeah. got the calendar out. Yeah. And they go to town on doing right. it on yeah. quality materials and all this kind of stuff. So that is a quality package. Yeah. I mean, this is the paradox. This is the, the endless tension of the fan is you get these cool stuff like action figures and books. Yeah. And you just can't bring yourself to open them, to play with them or read them. <clears throat> but you own them. Well, so yeah. you're saying you're saying it's great. I I'm still, I still not a proper fan because I, I always open everything. Oh yeah, yeah, I will open that. Yeah, I'm yeah. just not going to open it in your house. <laughs> no, I'm, t- I'm tempted to take a knife to it and just <laughs> stab right through yeah, the yeah. heart of it. Yeah. It even comes with a pair of proper antique collector's gloves with wow. the Who Dares logo on it. That's amazing. It is limited to fifty copies. Mm-hmm. If there are any still on sale by the time this podcast goes out. You I'm going to have to say I'd recommend it. You will hunt them down <laughs> and kill anybody that owns the others. I'm not so going to... You can be the sole possessor of these well, this is the thing that I, I haven't never, seen because they're sealed in the thing. I never sell my Doctor Who stuff. No. I never would, and no. I never will. No. I suppose if I was in an accident, my mm. family would sell the Doctor yeah. Who stuff. But until or unless I'm in an accident or whatever... Yeah. I've never sold them. I've given. I've given... Uh, the Paul McGann books away to somebody who was reading them and I decided I'd never read and I've given the VHS tapes to a charity shop back yeah. when they used to give them but I've never sold anything oh I suppose I have sold things like the VHS tapes you sold Ye- them? Well, oh, yeah. years and years and years ago when um, DVD first came in back right. in 99 yes there were people advertising I think when I say people I don't mean like your kind of eBay marketplace type people. I mean, there were companies advertising to yeah. take your VHS collections off your hand, mm-hmm. okay. and that was okay. and that was at a time when actually they'd give you something like five pounds a tape, right? Whereas okay. now it'd be okay. like fifty p a tape. Yeah, and I just and I had friends who worked in various parts of the business, and they said, "Look, ditch your VHS." Okay. You ain't gonna need it, right? And just buy a DVD player. I was more conservative. I only replaced them as I got the DVDs. No, yeah, I didn't see, like the idea of of not having time lash in <laughs> my possession see, somehow. I stacked my entire VHS collection into boxes and sent it off to this company and got wow. I don't know a couple of grand. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean they weren't giving like a fiver for everything. There was like a lot of films that were like really commonplace. We're getting like yeah. two quid or something yes. like that. Yeah. But the Doctor Who ones were going, they gave me seven quid each for those. Wow. Okay. And obviously I had quite a few of them. Yes. So, you know, that was a, oh, I've torn a hole in the name of trousers. Okay, that's podcast gold. Wow. JR, JR is wearing down his trousers. You've been on your knees too much. I obviously have. I don't know quite how that happened. Lucky, anyway, lucky, I the Doctor lucky Who leave. VHS tapes. <laughs> but that was only because I knew I was going to replace them on DVD. Yes. Yeah. And I made copies of them. Oh, okay. Before they went. Right. Oh, yeah, I was never without them. Okay, okay. Uh, but, oh, that's uh, canny. But I figured on them all coming out on DVD, and I was yes. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, so. yeah. Anyway, shall we uh, get on to the subject at hand? Okay. Right. When we talked with David Kitchen... Is this where you take me out of my comfort zone? Yeah. Okay. Because I don't want you to look at this. Normally, you put your academic head on. Okay. And you try and treat everything... As if you're observing it from the point of view of somebody who lectures in media studies. Right. I don't want you to do that. Okay. Tonight, I want the pair of us to put ourselves... Because I don't find this necessarily difficult because I try and do this anyway. And I think I do do this anyway. Mm -hmm. 
I want us both to be members of the general public and not be academics and not be critics and not right. be Doctor Who fans. Okay. But obviously, to still talk about this stuff with a level of insight. Okay. But the question is, yes. well, the name that's on this podcast, what is Doctor Who for? Yeah. Well, when we talked to David Kitchen, we talked about social satire. Mm -hmm. And essentially, we had this great big long conversation where we tried to go through Doctor Who. And what we did was we pulled out examples of stories that behaved as social satire. Yeah. You know, as a sort of package. Mm -hmm. But as we were going through, I think the thing that we... Because when because all TV reflects what's going on in the world around it, right? Yeah. All art yeah, yeah. reflects what's going on in the world around it, whether mm -hmm. it's a painting, a sculpture, yeah. a television program, a book, a film. Either it reflects it or it actively shapes it. Yeah. And by and by implication becomes it anyway. So <clears throat> yeah. But the thing we found with Doctor Who was, I think. Well, I uh, the impression I got was that what we discovered against what we probably expected was that there was less of that going on in Doctor Who than we might have been given to expect. Mm -hmm. Maybe. So at the end of the podcast, the kind of question that raised itself was, well, if Doctor Who's not doing this, not what is it doing, but what is it for? Okay. Hence, what is Doctor Who for? Right. So what I want us to do is rather, because Doctor Who works on two levels, mm -hmm. and most are... I guess, works on two levels. Well, I guess most art works on many different levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but primarily, yeah. most art or entertainment, most product mm -hmm. works on the level of somebody who is inclined towards that thing and somebody who's not inclined towards that thing. Right. Because you don't put art or media or product out there, generally speaking, and certainly not if you're on BBC One, aiming it, only specifically at a target demographic at the expense of any other target demographics. No, so... So basically, with Doctor Who, what we're saying is, on one level, it has to work for the fans. Yes. But on another level, and this is much more important level, mm. it has to work for the general public. Yes. And so with, with television, you either get television programmes that are designed to appeal for commercial reasons to attract people advertising. Or for the BBC, it has to appeal to as many people as possible because everybody pays for the BBC. Exactly. So it's national. So, yeah. So, so right from the word go, basically, mm. BBC mm. are making Doctor Who intending that it should be able to be enjoyed mm. by every single person in this country. Yeah. And, well, whether it goes abroad and is appreciated by people abroad yeah. is kind of neither here or there at the point of production. Yes. Because it's being made for the people who pay the TV licence. You've also, and you're going to accuse me of jumping ahead, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, at some point, we could we could consider the fact that the BBC has a philosophy behind it, and it still has a philosophy behind it, of Lord Reith, which is to entertain informant. Yeah. I'm only going to go through... I've got about three quotes and one yeah. other thing to bring up before okay. we kick into it, but that's okay. where I was going to kick into it. Okay. So... How, okay. how often do I start talking about the thing that you're going to start talking about? Um, oh, I do believe this is probably the very first time. Oh, okay. No, no. <laughs> carry, carry on. Lead, lead me no, into, no, into my discomfort zone. No, it's not, but... My, my discomfort zone is going to be a challenge because... 
I talk about things from an academic point of view, but yeah, that's, well, that's how I see that's how I see the world. Yeah, but you're I also do. a person, so I want you to see. I want you to try and do this as a person rather than your job. I don't know what. Then it's not my job. It's what I'm like. This is genuinely what I'm like. Okay, but I want to. Well, let's try. I'll, I'll try to. I'll try to. I'll try to pretend that I'm somebody else. Well, just try and yeah. But okay, here's an example of something that happened. Yeah, I don't know, maybe two years ago. Right. I can't remember whether this was on Facebook or by email or maybe. Is this something I did? Forum? No, me. Okay. Something right. that happened with me. Somebody I knew on Facebook or on one of the forums or somewhere was saying. They were not enjoying Doctor Who. Right. And I was saying, you know, it's that classic thing of the anticipation Mm. is leading you up the garden path. And then when the programme comes on, it's not what you anticipated it to be. And that spoils your enjoyment of it. And disappointment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody created that name. And, And obviously... I don't know, something like 75% of negative reviews, and when I say reviews, I mean tweets and Facebook statuses of Doctor Who, tend to be things like, to pull a random example, Hellbent. A lot of people were complaining about Hellbent, saying, why is this episode all about Clara? I was expecting it to be all about some kind of war or Gallifrey. And I'm thinking, you only have to watch the previous 11 episodes to know Mm -hmm. it's going to be about Clara. Yeah. If you wanted it to be about a war on Gallifrey, then that's one thing. Yes. But expecting it to yeah. be about a war on Gallifrey is something entirely else. I mean, it ties into the argument we had episodes ago about Paradigm Doctor Who, about fans <clears throat> tend to expect and anticipate a Paradigm Doctor Who, but Paradigm Doctor Who doesn't... The doesn't conclusion really of that, that episode yeah. that we spent hours on, it doesn't really exist. It's sort of like a myth. So this person said this to me, I'm not really enjoying Doctor Who at the moment. And I said to this person, I wish I could remember who it was. I said to this person, instead of sitting down on a Saturday night and making an appointment with it and thinking, here's Doctor Who, here's this thing that I desperately want to love, Mm. why don't you just instead record it, stick it on at some random point on the Sunday when you're just feeling relaxed, pretend it's not Doctor Who Mm. and watch it as if it's just another thing that's on the telly that you just happen to have stumbled upon. And this person wrote back a few weeks later and said, I've been doing that for the last few weeks. I've just been watching Doctor Who as if it's just another television programme. And you know what? I'm really enjoying it. Okay. And kind of the point I'm making there is, this is the dichotomy between the way a fan watches something and the way the public watches something. And if we're going to talk about what Doctor Who is for then although we can talk about and probably will do later how it works for fans yeah and what it is for in terms of what fans want yeah obviously so, that's only a very small part of what it is so what i'm going to do is i'm going to take my fan hat off yeah but my academic hat is not a hat <clears throat> my academic i've got a, an academic head with a fan hat, and I'm taking my fan hat off. Right, but the reason I want to kind of try and get away from the academic thing as well is because the people who sit down and watch it mm. don't watch it at an academic level. So I don't want us to be discussing, or I want us to try and avoid as much as possible discussing how it works in those terms. Okay. I want us to try and work, I want us to try and sit down, and I think we'll probably go through the whole of Doctor Who, but right. you know, 
briefly. Yes. We, we won't be going into great detail. Yeah. But, you know, Doctor Who has phases. Okay. And I think we can split the classic series up into maybe six phases and yeah. the new series up basically into two. So we've got eight phases to get through, yeah. essentially. Although, although technically, technically speaking, by splitting it up into phases, we've already put our academic hats on. Well, because no, we're very, because, but then we can look uh, at the phases from non from a non academic perspective. Well, no, well, yes and no. See that, but you can see Did my you hear conflict. The interview with Rob Shearman, <laughs> no, from the Exeter Minigun. Not yet. Oh, um, the one you did personally. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Right at the end of the last but one episode, or last but two episodes, uh, there was an interview with Rob Shearman, and at the end, I asked him a question, and he gave me exactly the answer that I gave somebody else. I don't mm. know, a few months or a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. in prose somewhere, I think, or maybe it's in one of the You and Who books. I can't remember. I asked him, what is it about Doctor Who? And he said, this is exactly the thing that I think drew me in, is that you you watch it as a programme and you're aware that it's got a history. And when you're first getting into these things, probably when you're a kid, you're drawn to the fictional history. So you're thinking stories with Time Lords, stories with Daleks, stories with regenerations. Mm -hmm. These are the things that pique your interest. Yeah. But as you get more interested in the programme, if you go into it in that much depth, and this is why I'm talking about the dichotomy, as a fan, you become aware of the people who make it. And you realise that the people who are making it have different concerns from their predecessors and from the people who follow them. Mm -hmm. And they will bring those concerns to the programme, whatever those concerns might be. Yeah. In the late 70s, for example, Graham Williams and Anthony Reid were obviously quite heavily influenced by classical literature. Yeah. So you get a sort of classical literature concern. Literature concern. As a fan, you notice that. Yeah. As a viewer, you don't notice that consciously. Mm-hmm. But subconsciously, you're aware of changes in the programme, right? Yeah. Or even consciously, you're aware of changes in the programme while you might not consciously be aware of exactly what those changes are yeah. and what it is that's causing those changes to happen. Yeah. But you'd be aware that, you know, for example, for five years or for f- three or four years, the Doctor was stuck on Earth. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he's travelling around in space again. Mm-hmm. You'll notice these things. Yeah. You won't necessarily know why these things are happening. Mm-hmm. And so our conversation should be about the things that the viewers are noticing. Okay. And about what sort of bleeds through. Yeah. So we can talk about the concerns of the people making the programme, but what we're trying to do is establish the window between those people and the people who are watching it. Look, I'll get to the quotes, because now I've been rambling. I thought it was going to be a long intro. It has been. Um, And these aren't quotes that necessarily highlight exactly what I want to talk about, but they're quotes that illustrate things about the subject. Mm -hmm. One of them is a quote from the programme, from the story of the Time Warrior, mm-hmm. Sarah Jane Smith says to the Doctor, you're serious, aren't you? At the point where he's just said something that's patently ridiculous. Yeah. And he says, this is in episode one, isn't it? Are you going to do a Pertwee impression? <clears throat> no, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> he says, I'm serious about what I do, yes, but not necessarily about the way I do it. Mm. I've paraphrased slightly there in case people are listening and shouting at the headphones because you interrupted me between the question and the answer. Yes. Now, to me, 
I mean, we'll get into this more because I've got four quotes, actually, mm. and I want to get into the, some of them in some depth. But the reason why I pulled that one out of the programme is because I think that says, that's quite a metatextual text. Yeah. Uh, quote from uh, Robert Holmes. It's quite metatextual. <laughs> yes. But what that's basically saying is that Doctor Who as a programme can address things, mm-hmm. but needs to do so in a way that disguises the fact that it's preaching to the people who are watching it. So yes. that they think they're simply being entertained, mm. but hopefully they're drawing something more from that. And it's also about Doctor Who being being effectively a horror programme, but one that's shown quite early on in the afternoon or late in the afternoon for young children. So it gets away with that by being... Silly. Silly, yeah. So yeah. it's it's serious about what it's showing. But the but character of the Doctor and the tone and the way the Doctor reacts to the monsters is always undercutting that horror. Very true. So it's the whole programme's based on... I mean, this is why I like the programme. And more than it... I like something like Star Wars or Star Trek, because there's that degree of British... What I see as very, very British eccentricity well, underpinning yeah. the whole thing. And that comes back to the fact that it's working on a bunch of different levels. Yes, yeah. And, that, and, and to be honest, if we're going to say what we like about Doctor Who is the fact that it works on so many different levels, mm. that other things don't have to, don't need to, yeah. wouldn't even think to. But Doctor Who kind of needs to because it's got to do this thing and, that I'm talking about. And and also, that's the reason I emotionally like the programme. It's not my... That's, so I've, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to take you my academic hold. I don't have emotions, but... The reason I feel that kind of intangible connection to the program is because of that eccentricity. That's a, that's at the base level. It's not because it's a complex text. It's not because it's deeply nuanced or it's fabulously performed, although sometimes it is, or it's incredibly written. It's because it's got this this edge in it, this eccentric edge in it. That's the reason I like it. Right, Douglas Adams said, and yep. this is very pertinent, that Doctor Who has to be complex enough for the kids to enjoy mm. and simple enough for the adults to follow. Mm-hmm. And that says something about the levels at which various different members of the audience will watch a programme. Yes. And Tom Baker went on to say later, and this kind of illustrates it in more depth, Doctor Who is watched at several levels in an average household. The smallest child, terrified behind a sofa or under a cushion, and the next one up laughing at him, and the elder one saying, shush, I want to listen, and the parents saying, isn't this enjoyable? Mm -hmm. And that kind of says something... Well, they've both illustrated that by drawing a parallel between the way kids watch it and the Mm -hmm. way grown-ups watch it. But actually, the parallel they're drawing is the difference between the way fans watch it and casual viewers watch it. Yeah. Because kids and fans will watch the programme to follow the story, Mm. while the grown-ups in this illustration, or the casual audience in the wider illustration, will watch the programme not to sort of tot up the minutiae, but just to be entertained. Mm Mm-hmm. And to be entertained, I don't think you necessarily need to follow a plot as long as you have enough signifiers in the plot of... And I've said this before, as long as you know who the bad guy is, and as long as you can see the good guy defeating him at the end, you don't necessarily need to follow 
all the plot points that get you from A to B. Now, that's a very simplified way of yes. putting it. But what I'm really saying is, and this goes back to what I was talking about with uh, as you become a fan, you notice what the production team are bringing to it. Mm. Whereas as a viewer, you just notice what's going on on the screen. What I'm really saying here is you don't need to know as a viewer that Stephen Moffat writes it, that Douglas Adams used to write it, that Terry Nation's written stories. If you sit down and you watch a Dalek story Mm. and you think, you know, the Daleks are silly, or if you think the Daleks are scary, or if you think, you know, the plot that's being put in front of you that particular week is too complicated or not complicated enough or engaging enough that you're engaged in it. Yeah. The point is that as a viewer, you need to be caught up in what's going on. But at the end of the episode... And you forget about it. And this is particular. This is particular. So there are several things I'm thinking about now. And this is particular to Doctor Who because I occasionally watch the Avengers, the uh, the British Steed and Peel Avengers. Oh, I had this conversation with someone the other day, so Which, I know what you're going to say. But, well, yeah. but, but the Avengers is always is quite often equated with Doctor Who. It's quite often considered to be on the same level. But I watch. But I watch the Avengers like I would watch Doctor Who with sometimes with half a brain on and doing something. And I'd completely lost the plot of the Avengers. The Avengers actually has really complicated storylines right. that you can lose your way in. Whereas Doctor Who, I think, and these quotes, these, so this is the second thing I, I thought about, these quotes also illustrate the time that Doctor Who is shown in the afternoon at the point. So it's that nexus point between children's television and adult television. It's kind of, it's kind of got that, that kind of, um, that kind of bridge feel to it. Yeah. So it does exactly yeah. what these, what Tom Baker and Douglas Adams are talking about. Well, and the other thing about the Avengers is, at the end of every episode, it completely resets. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that Doctor Who completely doesn't do. Well, it does at the end extent. of the yes, yeah. But and the, the other thing that struck me about these quotes is they're both from a time. So the, the way the way audiences view Doctor Who changes over the the period of the story, uh, the period of the, of the series. series. Yeah, yeah. And at this point, the difference between the fan viewer and the mainstream viewer was very thin, I think, because it was so popular. Well, I think these quotes came afterwards, but they were talking about... Yeah, about the, 19, this, the well, high point of the 1970s. they were talking about the late 1970s, which is when fandom started to get organised and rear its head. But it was still... But they were talking about, essentially, that point in the mid-70s before that had happened. Yes, and I think I think that's the point. And I think it's, it's repeated again with the new series with David Tennant, possibly, where suddenly every viewer, or most viewers, become fans of the programme. Well, what they do is they become regular viewers. Yeah, yeah. Which is... But... I think there's a huge difference between being somebody who will tune in every week regardless of what they're doing and somebody who actually sits there and thinks about it for the six days in between. Yes, yeah. And but I think, but I, think I think the, the, the dividing line does get narrowed at certain points in the series history. And at others, maybe in the 1980s, it's broadened and you suddenly start losing the mainstream viewers. And yeah, you left yeah, it. Yeah. So you, maybe in, yeah. But I don't, I don't think, I don't think it narrows to the point at which your casual view... It's not, it hasn't vanished, but it's narrowed. I don't think it narrows to the point at which the general viewer is actually 
sitting there for the six days in between mm. thinking, how are they going to get out of this one? And during the tenant years, I think the conversations that they were having weren't, how are they going to get out of this one so much as will they end up in bed together? I would, I would, I, I would say there's one exception to that, potentially one exception. And that's the, and that's the fake regeneration yeah, yeah, tenant. Yeah. And that really did but that, get into the newspapers. Oh, yeah. But that is... It is a story point, yeah. but it's not an ongoing story point. It's a story point, that's how the last episode ended. Yes. How will the next episode start? Yeah. It's not about a resolution to a, an arc that's been going on throughout the series. No, no. And I think that's the difference what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I don't, and I don't mean... And I don't mean in terms of arcs because, because what I'm talking about is, let's take a random example: the Sea Devils. Mm-hmm. Now, the Sea Devils ran for five weeks, yeah. six episodes, in uh, 1972, mm-hmm. and it would have been watched by I don't have the figures in front of me. It would have been watched by something just south of 10 million viewers, I expect, across yeah. those weeks, and in fandom at this point, it's not organised. Mm. And I don't think there are figures to say how many, but presumably no more than maybe a quarter of that audience is sort of under the age of 14 or something. Mm. So most of the people who are watching are cogent enough people that they would be able to hold the story. Yeah, But I don't think the way... And see, I'm having to conject here, but I don't think the way people watch Doctor Who is that they're going to hold the story from one week to the next, across five weeks, six episodes. No. I think what has to happen is, and and you can't look at an episode and see this, but I think what needs to happen is a 25-minute instalment in the middle of a story like The Sea Devils needs to be self-contained enough that what's happening is the person who's watching it mm. sort of probably vaguely remembers what's been going on up until that point. And there will always be dialogue reminders. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's the skill of the episodic yeah, story yeah. writer. Is there to... has to be enough incident in that yeah. episode that they're engaged with it, despite the fact that and they're not desperately trying to remember things that happened for. And it's ago. also to, to include disguised reminders, disguised references yeah, back yeah, yeah. to the previous episode, just to... And sometimes they're not very well disguised, so you just no. think... Well, they're just they're just telling the story, or they're just repeating what happens like five minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. And the characters really, on yeah. the screen act like it's a week ago, but you know it's just they've just moved from one room to the other. And this, I happens. suspect, Talons of Wen Chiang is probably a bit like that. There's a really interesting quote from Russell T Davies, is one mm-hmm. that I've talked about before, yeah. which I think I'll save. Let's okay. talk about Reese then. Okay. When Doctor Who starts, yeah, the BBC's remit was a lot more. Well, not necessarily a lot more rigid then, but when Doctor Who started, it wanted to adhere to that remit mm-hmm. a lot more strictly. It was paternalistic, so mm. it was it was designed to educate. And so there's education and there's entertainment. And the balance between those two things have kind of have kind of shifted depending on who's in charge of the BBC and where it's at. Well, and what happened as well in terms of the series is the very second, not the very first story, to be honest, but the very second story, more noticeably, did something that upset that balance. Yes. And so what happens is the people making the programme are trying to to adhere to the thing 
that they started out with the intention of doing. Yes. While realising that they've actually come up the, with something more successful yeah. instead and they're trying to catch a balance well, this is between where, those two things. This is what's so brilliantly illustrated in Adventure in Space and Time. Times in Adventure in Space, space and, and Time, time. Yeah, yeah. is this conflict between between the commercial filmmakers, so Verity Lambert, Sidney Newman, and the old guard BBC creatives who are trying to sort of who are wondering what these mad people are doing, and the Daleks were the Daleks were the climax of that of both that story. It wasn't about, I mean, it was about William Hartnell, but yeah, yeah. the Daleks were were the sort of the high point. Of and that actually, story. I I think this happens in an earthly child in mm. the story. Yeah. I think it happens in the episode, to be honest. Yeah. But I think in the Tribe of Gum segment of that story, I think it's already happening. Yeah. You're you're not being terribly educational about cavemen's sort of discovery of fire. What no. you're really doing is telling a scary story yeah. about four people who are lost in you know, lost in the woods mm-hmm. in, in a fairy tale. Yeah. And so, so already do- So Doctor Who starts yeah. starts by trying to grip. Yeah, then yeah, it yeah. tries to frighten, and then it tries to educate. Yeah. So that's the general, that's the priority list of Doctor Who, and then it carries on doing that up until the Highlanders, when it kind of... Where it, well, and well, here's the thing. It loses the ostentatious educational yeah, yeah, aspect. Yeah. But it... But, uh, not always, but because of the nature of the programme, mm-hmm. you can't entirely shake that off altogether. No. I'll give you just a random example. Kill the Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a lot of sci-fi nonsense about the moon being an egg in it. Mm. But somebody wrote in, I think wrote into the podcast actually, and said, or again, it might have been something to do with one of my books, but I think it was a podcast. Somebody wrote in and said, well, I watched that with my kid. He didn't say what age, but mm. uh, a little boy, who's yeah. presumably somewhere south of 10 years old. And the kid started asking questions, well, what's the moon really like? What's the moon okay. really made of? All right. Okay. And all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And this is a story that I hadn't set out with the intention of doing that. No. But by the sheer fact that Doctor Who will do an episode about one thing one week and yeah. something entirely different the next, you're always going to be posing those questions in people's minds. And there is, a, kids. There is an explicit an explicit education, education aspect about Kill the Moon, and it's the same about the Zygon invasion inversion. There's this kind of moral, this moral well, exactly. philosophical dilemma at the the heart of it. Well, the story of the original sort of series back in 1963 that I think people have misread was that because there was a science teacher and a history teacher, mm. and they um, alternated between historical set stories and science fiction stories, mm. that the educational thing was about history and the historicals, yeah. and about science in the science fiction ones. Mm-hmm. That was never the intention no. for it to be about science. The right. science is kind of a side effect of them being science fiction stories, but they were supposed to be well, moral dilemmas. So, so it might have been the intention if Anthony Coburn had carried so something like Maybe, Masters yeah. of Luxor, but David Whittaker picks it up. And David Whitaker isn't Doctor Science. Well, he's, no, he's he's in, he's Doctor Doctor he's, Alchemy, and it's in Sidney Newman's notes. Actually, yeah. he says, "I want to alternate between three kinds of stories: his ones that teach you about history, ones that teach you about, or no, ones that teach you about history, ones that go off and do something slightly odd." Yes, sideways stories. Yeah, 
And the other thing he said wasn't ones that teach you about something about science. Well, no, there were various versions of these notes. They went through various different drafts. I think at some point, Mm -hmm. science was in there. But I think by the time he finished, I might be getting this the wrong way around, but I think by by the time he finished, ones that are in history, ones that go sideways, and ones that teach you about ethics and moral dilemmas. And the Daleks was supposed to be a story that that brings up an ethical dilemma yeah. mm-hmm. and poses that question in the viewer's, the children's minds. So yeah. the children are growing up learning about morals and ethics. Mm-hmm. And that was the aspect of it that I think the programme was supposed to carry forward. Yes. Of course, the next time you get a science fiction story after the Daleks, it's Terry Nation back again to do the Keys of Mariners. Yeah. And you've not really got much, you know, well, you've got to ice people who trying to rape Barbara or something. Yes, yeah. That's obviously bad, but that's black and white bad. You're not learning about ethics anymore or morals. There are touches in there. So, I mean, but there's, there so, there's so many little mini stories in The yeah. Kiss of Manus that there are, there are, and I'm trying to remember, there's a brain, there's a, uh, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's yeah. no central sort of tenet no, 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 story no, no, stands no. in the same way as there sort of is in the Daleks. Yeah. Or in yeah. fact, in the Daleks, there's kind of two, because there's that point halfway through the story when it changes from being one thing yes. to being something else. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's not go down this rabbit hole too okay. <laughs> The point is kind of, that's the first segment of the programme. Yeah. Okay. And that segment of the programme is... Uh, and here's something else. It's made by the drama department. Yeah. But it is... A children's program mm-hmm. and the reason it's made by the drama department is because it's being shown outside of what is traditionally a children's slot mm-hmm. so it's only being made by the drama department yeah because of a technicality right yeah it's not being it's not being made because fans like to wreck on these things and they'll go back and say well it's made by the drama department it's obviously yeah. for grown-ups yeah. No, it's a kids' program hmm. for kids, yeah. which is supposed to be inclusive of the whole audience. Yes, obviously, which goes system. back to what I was saying about the time it's shown and the day yeah. it's shown being that that tipping steps. that tipping point between yeah. the two. BBC uh, had a remit to make something for everybody. Yeah. So you've got Grandstand, mm. which is, uh, okay, we're going to obviously, I'm going to obviously have to generalise horrifically here. Okay. But Grandstand is for the dads. Yeah. Then you've got Doctor Who, which is for the kids. Then you've got Jukebox Jury, which is for the Teenagers. teens and adolescents. Yeah. Then you've got a game show, which is for the mums. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Obviously, I'm generalising horrifically. But what I'm saying is the BBC's lineup of a Saturday evening, mm. while each of those programmes can include all the other members, Jukebox mm. Jury doesn't necessarily have to be watched only by people between the ages of 13 and 22 or whatever. Mm-hmm. All of those programmes can include everybody, but there's a particular demographic mm. amongst that everybody that it's aiming more towards. Yeah. And Doctor Who is, without question aimed at the kids yeah. while being inclusive of the family. Mm. And I forgot the point that I was coming to just before. I, I mean, it has, to be aimed, it has to be aimed at the kids because kids are going to... If kids are going to... If you know kids are going to watch a programme, it has to be aimed at the kids because yeah. if you aim it at the adults, it's it becomes violent or you can't aim... 
if Game of Thrones was made for kids, it would be well, very game, different. Yeah. If Game of Thrones was shown at five o'clock in the yeah. afternoon, like yeah. Doctor Who was, yeah. it wouldn't be the programme it yeah. is. And like most just to go off on a very slight tangent, uh, I get so pissed off when people say, why isn't Doctor Who more like Game of Thrones? Because Game of Thrones is being shown to an audience a quarter of the size, yeah. uh, a post-watershed slot. That's mm. why. Yeah. I mean, and, and the other thing that I've just forgotten... Oh, sorry. No, it's fine. I've done the same thing to myself. Yes. So we were talking about the 60s, the early 60s, the part of which is still educational. Mm -hmm. It's for children. Mm -hmm. It's for children right up until the end of the 1970s. So let's just leave that as read. It will be for different ages of children throughout that time. But it's it's never really primarily for anybody older than 14. No. So... Throughout that entire period, is for basically people between the ages of eight and fourteen. Yeah. So let's leave that as read, unless something comes up and say, right, what's it doing for the rest of the audience? Mm-hmm. Because that's the question now. If it's for kids, but it's got to be including everybody else, what are the ways in which it includes those other people? Mm-hmm. And I think this is where this is this is the thing that starts in for me, basically in the tribe of Grum Gumbit but more obviously in the Daleks, and becomes the thing by the time Patrick Trout becomes a Doctor. It yeah. doesn't happen overnight when Patrick Trout becomes a Doctor. It probably starts more obviously in something like the War Games, mm-hmm. not the War Games, the War Machines, right. and the Tenth Planet, and then by the time you get to Season 5, it's doing it every single week. What's it doing? <coughs> and for me, what happens is, that when you start, you've got an adventure in history, an yeah. adventure in outer space, an adventure in history, an adventure in the future, yeah. an adventure in history, an adventure on a spaceship. Mm-hmm. What you've basically got is Michael Palin's Around the World in 80 Days in space. Right. What's happening is, because... It starts with Barbara and Ian's journey. Mm-hmm. And this is what Russell T. Davis comes back to. Russell T. Davis comes back to Barbara and Ian's journey. Yeah. But what happens after that is they introduce a bunch of companions that you don't really care about because they're mm-hmm. from the future or they're from the past or whatever. They don't, they don't, those other companions don't illustrate the audience's journey that the audience would take if the audience were taken away in the TARDIS. Yeah. But Barbara and Ian do. But what Barbara and Ian do is they start travelling to all these exotic places. Right. So you get into... kind of If you sat down and sort of casually watched the sort of Michael Palin type series where he goes around the world, Mm. or David Attenborough's nature programmes, whatever, what you'd basically be doing is you'd sort of be absorbing bits of knowledge about all sorts of things. Yeah. But what you'd really be doing is looking at the pretty pictures each week. You know, you know what? So I'm going to... What you're also doing is watching someone like Michael Palin or, or Alan Wicker. Somebody on a journey. But someone eccentric, someone slightly humorous, someone slightly irreverent looking at these things. And that's what you get. That's what appeals to adults about Doctor Who. It's not just the travelling, it's not just the travelling around, but it's watching an actor like William Hartnell and how he plays with actors like William Russell and Jacqueline Hill 
and how they've they develop their own characters through in jokes and gestures and witticisms. And I think that's what appeals to the adults that children might not necessarily spot. So you get to a point where you have a character that not that you identify with, mm. but a character who you're allowing to stand in for you yeah. as the witness to these exotic locations. Yeah. And I think I I don't know, I'm putting my neck on the line a little bit by saying I think by the time the Doctor Who's established, maybe a year, two years into the run, where people work out what the programme's about, yeah. I guess, I don't think they really give a damn what happens in it anymore, as long as there's sort of a scary bit yes. and a funny bit yeah. and something slightly odd to look at that they've never... Because the thing about the Michael Palin things is, in this day and age of the internet... Mm those kind of images are a lot more accessible to us. Yeah. But when the, in the 1960s and the 1970s, travelogue programmes like that mm. would be really exotic yeah. because people had never visited those places, mm-hmm. yeah. had never seen video of those places. Yeah. Had never, uh, most people would have no clue what those places were like. So they are exactly the same as Doctor Who, yeah. except for the fact that they're real places. I mean, the other thing is, uh, the, uh, the adult audience would know that these are actors playing parts and they know that this is a set and they know that the effects are bad and there's a certain degree of it's not a a so bad it's good pleasure but it's a pleasure of watching these actors basically play make-believe on these sets and you know that this is William Hartnell doing his damnedest to to act frightened in front of these things it's like watching a travel act a travelogue that takes you back to being a child. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a make-believe travelogue. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's what it's doing is it's allowing you, and this is particularly relevant because it's on a Saturday night in the middle mm. of the week, smack bang in the middle of the weekend. Yes. That's the time at which you're your most relaxed. And it's just kind of saying, here's something daft. I mean, it's the, same, 25 minutes. it's the same pleasure as you got with The Muppet Show. Because with The Muppet Show for children... The Muppets were cute and they were funny and they were lively and inventive. For the adults, you had guests. Yes, yeah, yeah. And the guests tended to take it really seriously and they got quite, you know, they got people like Orson Welles on The Muppet Show. And they're not, if they were sensible, they wouldn't camp it up. They would just play it completely straight. And that's for the adult audience, is watching, not watching the actors, but watching the actors deal with these ridiculous situations. And the same with uh, Morecambe and Wise as well. They got really prestigious actors in, like Peter Cushing. Well, and obviously playing people it straight. like Angela Rippon and Andre Pratt. Yeah, and you can an adult, an adult audience can tell that they're having the time of their lives because they're doing something completely different from what they normally do. But they also tell that they're trying desperately to keep a straight face. And also, there's a, a tension between when you have somebody really serious. There's a kind of a tension between just how seriously are they taking it mm. and just how much are they allowing it to be as silly as it is. Yes, yeah. And in Doctor Who, I think the main thing is, as long as an audience goes into an episode, whether it's in the middle of a story or whatever, mm. as long as they have enough of a clue about what's going on, say that you've missed the first three episodes of The Sensorites and you come in at episode four, yeah. as long as you have some kind of a clue about what's going on, mm. and let's face it, most of the stories in the 60s and 70s are simple enough that you can yeah. follow them even if yeah. you've missed the start. Mm-hmm. As long as you've got enough of a clue about what's going along, 
as long as it's set somewhere that kind of draws you out and fires your imagination, mm-hmm. and as long as there's a scary bit and there's a funny bit, whatever, a tense bit, as long as all those things are happening, you can engage with it for 25 minutes. Yeah. And at the end of those 25 minutes, you can probably forget all about it. Mm. But for those 25 minutes, the BBC have sat you in front of their channel and you haven't changed it to one of any of the others. Yes, yeah. That's kind of the important thing. Yeah. And if any messages, and like we said when David Kitchen were here, there were fewer messages than we were perhaps expecting there to be. Mm. But when I say messages, then I don't necessarily mean of the political or Mm. social commentary kind. But I mean, whatever the people who are producing it are interested in, if that's getting through as well, if that's being absorbed at least just a little bit, and say by the time you get to Graham Williams, say, if an audience of 10 million people are watching Underworld or the Hordens of Nymon, if just a 100 of those people go out and then discover the Odyssey or whatever, mm-hmm. then you're also doing something else as well. Yeah. And you're kind of getting that in under the radar. Yes. And yeah. I think I think that's basically what Doctor Who does. I mean... It's so obvious that you scarcely need saying. For 25 minutes, it just entertains you. Yeah. And at the end of 25 minutes, rather than necessarily leaving you thinking... Well, obviously, it leaves you thinking, how are they going to get out of this one? Mm -hmm. But I think an hour later, you've pretty much forgotten that until you re-engage with it the following week. Yeah. When you get the reprise of the cliffhanger, and you think, oh, yes, of course, that's where they were left. How are they going to get out of this one? Yeah, yeah. But I think the thing that you're perhaps left with is a sense of, so what did the story address this week? Mm. So, for example, Brain of Morbius is obviously about Frankenstein, or inspired by Frankenstein, in part. I think maybe, after you've watched the Brain of Morbius, at the end of episode one, you're thinking, oh my God, how's Sarah Jane going to escape from that thing? Mm. But then an hour later, you've probably forgotten all about Sarah Jane, Mm. but you might be thinking about Mary Shelley instead. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I think the thing that you take out of Doctor Who is, what's the exotic location this week? Or what's the exotic plot line this week? I think rather, for me, I, th- I think what you take out of Doctor Who is, what has Tom Baker done this week? What yeah, has John yeah, 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 do this too, week? yeah, too. And this might be why the series achieves heights of, one of the reasons why the series achieves heights of popularity when there's this kind of outlandish leading man in the role. And why, it sort of, and why it sort of dips maybe when Peter Davison, say, is in, is in the role, particularly because Peter Davison is a great actor, but he's not got that kind of, that kind of charisma. Well, he loses. Well, he sort of, I mean, I'm not sure what the exact figures are, but Peter Davison kind of loses about a third of his audience across his three years. Yeah, and it's not just because of that, but I think, I think it's very much, at certain points of the show, it's very much the show of a leading man of Tom, it's Tom Baker's show. And I think or a they, leading duo. Yeah. Poten- potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Not I always, mean, it's not, it's yeah. not always consistent. So yeah. But I think William Hartnell had that as well. I think William Hartnell would have been yeah, very, very definitely. popular. He was incredibly um, popular. with the And William Russell as well. Mm. Um, Patrick Charlton, I guess. I, I think it's Patrick probably Trout an ensemble. Lost a lot of viewers. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's, that's the point where, He's an excellent. He's probably one for me. He's one of the best actors to have played the part, but but mm. he he doesn't have that kind of that well, kind is, of central 
You know, this is the next sort of prong of the conversation, I think. Light entertainment. No, oh, okay. that's where I'm going to probably yes. land up. Right. I, I think that goes without saying, and I have said it before, but that's basically where we're going to go. Right. It's essentially what we've, what I've already been saying. Yeah. Without actually using the words. But Patrick Troughton, when Patrick Troughton's the doctor, obviously he's not without charisma. No. God, he's got yeah, 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 a bucket yeah, load. Yeah. But it's a different kind of charisma. I think when William Hartnell's the doctor, and when John Pertwee and Tom Baker are the doctor, mm. the thing they share yeah. is. Uh, it's not the word patrician and it's not the word alien. But what they share is a kind of a distance. So what I what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring up light entertainment now just briefly because I, I want to make a okay, point. Okay, go on. Then. Is you can imagine so John Pertwee, and it actually has been a game show host at times. You mm. can imagine Tom Baker being a game show host. He's got oh. that personality. You can't imagine Patrick Troughton being a game show host. Patrick Troughton's a proper actor, an authentic actor, as William Hartnell would say. But William but, Hartnell, I think you can. I think William Hartnell is in the mould of people like, and these are not close examples, mm. but this is, he's um, a Bruce Forsyth. Yeah. Or a um, Nicholas Parsons, or a, what was the guy who did the Generation game, the very camp one? Oh, Grayson, Larry Grayson. Larry Grayson. William Hartnell, to the children watching, yeah. is one of those characters. Yes. The old, slightly funny guy mm. who you don't quite know if you like, yeah, but you like if yes. you see what I mean. Yeah, so he's he's kind of somewhere on one of those one of those public figures that would now be arrested under Operation U Tree. <laughs> he's the grandfather who has moments of real grumpiness, yes. but always pulls a packet of toffee yeah. out of his yeah. pocket when yeah. you get there. I th- I think yes, yeah, you might have a point, and I think the same is true for John Pertwee and Tom, Tom Baker. Baker. There's a kind of a distance. You never know whether you're going to get the jelly babies, yes, or if he's going to snap at you. Yeah, yeah. he's kind of he's on that. There's mm. a kind of tension there. But there's, think, a, there's the way. There's also the way that they attract the camera and attract the eye. Mm. That William Hartnell doesn't, no, Patrick Troughton doesn't, doesn't attract the eye. His brilliance is he's often he's often around, in the yeah. background, and he's a he's a you know he's a performer, and it might be he's a great television performer notoriously he disliked being on the stage whereas Tom Baker a great <laughs> stage performer and so and when you're a stage performer you have to attract okay. because the whole stage is the television screen and there's lots of people on it so if you're going to make a mark or you're going to tell a story you have to draw the viewer's eye or the audience's eye to you or somehow you. and he does that on screen so I think what happens with Patrick Troughton slightly because mm. I and I don't think it happens as much as people think it does. Mm. But I think it happens just enough that it becomes something that the people who start making Doctor Who in the 1980s are kind of drawing from. Is that in the late 60s, it becomes a sci-fi program mm-hmm. rather than a program that just happens to have a sci-fi framework in which to do other things. Mm. So you kind of start getting stories. It's where it becomes the monster of the week. It also becomes the concept of the week. Yeah. And while that's sort of been there all the time anyway, and will always be there because you have to have a concept, mm. but it can't, but the concept kind of 
has a slightly more prominent place in the narrative. Yeah. Partly because of the fact that it was by now being so cheaply made that they have like four sets. So the concept has to drive it a bit more. Well, it's also, it's also to do with the, the dying days of the Hartnell, of the Hartnell years. Yeah, yeah, that's because, because Hartnell is fading as an actor and as a, a human being. So his place in the narrative has to be replaced. Replaced, and it's replaced by spectacle and by, by monsters. So that's what Troughton inherits. Twist, the story twist. Yeah, yeah, so concept. that's what it, that's what Troughton inherits, and he becomes the actor that's needed. He is. He becomes the character that's needed to prioritise the spectacle and the sets and the monsters. So I think when you get to... John Nathan Turner taking over. Mm -hmm. Everybody's looking back at Patrick Troughton because John Nathan Turner first started working on the program when Patrick Troughton was the doctor. Yeah. Peter Davison obviously Mm. nominated Patrick Troughton as kind of his doctor, as it were. Yeah. I think what they're doing is, whether they're conscious of it or not, is they're allowing the concepts to replace the characters in the narrative. Well, I think they're very conscious of it because there's Probably, a there's yeah. a as a an obvious effort to push Tom Baker into the background. And it's so ridiculous yeah. to try to do it. And it's and it's one of the weird weird and slightly disconcerting things about watching the Bidmead that watching season eighteen it's the horrible is watching things. them try to push Tom Baker into yeah. the background, but actually he constantly kind of Shows flashes of his old, his old, his old sort of eccentricity, his old. Like, it's not just kind of game show loads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Persona. And it's not just kind of taking his sense of humour away from him. In the Leisure Hive, they turn him into an old man for yeah. two episodes. Yeah. In Meglos, they put him behind Cactus Maker mm-hmm. for yeah. like half the running time. Yeah. They're doing all these things to mm-hmm. him. Yeah. And you know, by the time you get to Warriors Gate, for instance, Romana replaces him in the storyline. Yeah. As the sort of main protagonist and Logopolis they throw three or four companions at him yeah all these things are happening yeah and you're right I, I think they know what they're doing but yeah. I, I don't think what, what, what I mean is I don't think they're sort of aware that that's making a change no. I think they just I think they're just thinking that's what Doctor Who does yes whereas actually as I think we've established up until that point up until season 17 the actors, the, well, to put it into an order would be stupid, yeah. but kind of, to me, the actor's the most important thing, the yeah. location's the second most important mm-hmm. thing, and the concept that drives the plot is the third most important But there's thing. a there's an irony here that John Nathan Turner is generally considered to be the light entertainment populist the producer. He's the one that <laughs> loves, loves the glitz, loves the game shows, and yet... The series had just come out of probably the most light. It, it came out of a period where Tom Baker, the leading man, was the the game show crazy. host. Yeah. yeah, and suddenly you've got John Pertwee trying to do effectively what Casino Royale did to the to, to the Bond films in the mid two thousands, trying to bring it back to basics. What he thinks is basics, and that means pushing the Doctor into the background. Well, and it's the light entertainment. Yeah. Thing. Well, here's the thing. I think. What's happening in the 80s is John Nathan Turner has an idea about the the exotic location mm. leading the stories. Because mm-hmm. John Nathan Turner famously is not about plot, but he's about what the visuals are. Yeah. So I think John Nathan Turner essentially has the right instinct. I think he makes a real pig's ear of bringing that instinct to the screen 
But then again, it was the 1980s. Yes. So you've got to take that into account too. Yeah. I think it's his script editors letting him down. But when I say letting him down, I mean his script editors are pulling the programme away yes. from where John Nathan Turner wants it to be. And I don't think he sees that and I don't think he understands it. Potentially, I think he swings wildly between the poles though because he he casts... Well, he lets He them. casts Peter Davison, who's obviously more of a Patrick Troughton mould character to be pushed in the background. But Davison, but then, crucially, had just been in two very, very popular yeah, programmes. So he's a popular actor, mm. but he's not he's not a game show host actor. No. Colin Baker is is swung the other way. Colin Baker seems almost like an attempt to recapture season sixteen, seventeen Tom Baker. But fa- then, but fails because Because the script editors put him in a story yeah. where he's not he's not he's not able to bring those qualities to the screen. Well, they don't know how to handle him. No. And they're, and they're slightly overly ambitious with him because they present a character who's supposed to develop and mature oh, over yeah. seven they seasons. They the floor ahead of the character, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which is uh, the wrong way to go about it. Yeah. He, he doesn't... And he, also Colin Baker isn't as good an actor or as charismatic as Tom Baker. No, but I don't think he's a million miles away. Possibly. I mean, it might be an indefinable thing that Tom Baker has, and it might be a nostalgic thing I have for Tom Baker, but I think Tom Tom Baker is less irritating than Colin Baker. No, I think... yeah, Maybe I mean, less irritating Colin... than Colin Baker's performance as the Zoe. I don't think it's Colin Baker's fault. I think, yeah, I think maybe the Colin Baker's doctor. The there was just a sort of tension. But I think what's put, happening Put there... Colin Baker into an arc in space with that dialogue. Maybe... Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a different coat, maybe Colin Baker would have been something spectacular. But I think what's happening is, for the first six years of the 1980s, mm. the script editors are taking the programme in one direction mm. that takes you back to concept-driven storylines. Yeah. And whether they're aware that they're doing it or not, there's a constant battle between John Nathan Turner trying yeah. to give the kind of snappy visuals that audiences have been getting from Doctor Who for the first 17 years. Yeah. And the script editors giving him storylines that do not suit that approach. And this also feeds into the the conflict between or the tension between the fans, the fan approach and the mainstream audience approach, because fandom wasn't established for for Patrick Troughton, but in the nineteen seventies and eighties, that monster season, that Patrick Troughton era, was seen as the paradigm Doctor yeah, Who, yeah. It was seen as the archetypal Doctor Who, and John Nathan Turner would have recognised this, would have absorbed this. And I, I remember interviews where people have said, we're trying to get it back to, to being scary, back to Patrick Troughton. And they bring Patrick Troughton back. Yeah, yeah. So, but as we've seen, Patrick Troughton's great. And actually, I love the Patrick Troughton stories, but it's not very popular with mainstream viewers. The leading character is pushed into the background, which I, I like because I see Doctor Who as... As drama, as yeah. drama. Yeah, yeah. I don't watch it as a children's program anymore. I watch it as as comedy drama. Um, but if you try to make it comedy drama and forget about the mainstream audience, then you, you get the nineteen eighties. Yeah. And also, I think the other thing, going back to as well, what I was talking about earlier on was that as a casual audience, you kind of forget the stories, mm. what's going on in the story between episodes. As a fan, you don't. Yeah. You think about those things. Mm-hmm. And so, what a casual audience. What, I don't know, we don't know what the figure is, but let's say 90% of the audience 
are watching Doctor Who as light entertainment, essentially, yeah. as this kind of exotic travelogue, fictional, make-believe, magical travelogue. And 10% of the audience do take the concepts away from them, with them, hmm. from one week to the next, do follow the plots. And so, whereas for a casual audience, probably the importance of what they're seeing is the character, the location, then the plot, the concept. For a fan audience, it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. It's the plot, then the location, then the character. Yeah. Because although obviously the Doctor's hugely important to them, they're not concentrating on him, but they're concentrating on where he is, and more importantly, even than that, they're concentrating on what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And this is why, when you get to the 1980s, where you've got an organised fandom who are, to a certain extent, and we all know what Ian Levine was up to at the time, driving the programme, they're suddenly driving the programme through its concepts rather than through its characters. Yes. I think it changes slightly after the trial of the Time Lord. Mm. I think when Andrew Cartmel comes in, I think, whether it's deliberate or not, I think he gets it. Yeah. And I think he's... And in spite of the fact that you couldn't think Andrew Cartmel and John Nathan Turner could be further apart in terms of people and in terms of what they want for the programme. Yeah. Obviously they hit it off in some way. Mm-hmm. The only thing that lets it down is the production values. But all of a sudden with Andrew Cartmel, you get a sense that the locations and the characters are again at the forefront rather yeah. than the concepts. And the fact that they've also got strong concepts is like the icing on the cake. You've got a series that can appeal to children and adults again, but they choose to show it at seven thirty in the evening. Yes. Opposite Coronation Street. It's and like they a- take it away from its home slot of five Thirty on a Saturday. Look at season twenty-six. You've mm. got nights from outer space, yeah. followed by a ghost story, yeah. followed by something set in World War Two, followed by something yeah. set on the planet of the cat yeah. people, and vampires, and yeah. And all the while, you've got this ongoing storyline between the Seventh Doctor and Ace, and there's so much chemistry between McCoy and Aldred. They're what's driving the program, and the second thing that's driving the program is. Wow, we fetched up in World War Two. Yeah. Wow, we fetched up on the planet of the cat people. Mm. And the concepts themselves, they're really strong. Yeah. But they're not what driving they're not what should have been driving the programme for an audience that was actually watching the other side. Yes. Yeah. It should have and could have really worked. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get to the new series. But we've we've kind of skated over those six different segments of the classic series that I was talking about. But basically it all comes down to the same thing and people just did putting different interpretations on it. Yeah. For example, late 60s, early 70s, you've got a lot of stories set on Earth, so it's not so much about the exotic locations as about the exotic creatures that turn up in those locations. Yes. And to a certain extent, you're still getting to see things that the normal person at that point probably wouldn't get to see an awful lot of, mm-hmm. like these big installations and things like that. Whatever. Yes. But essentially, it's still doing the same thing. The new series comes along and it's taking place in a slightly different landscape. Yeah. So, whereas all these things were like extremely exotic mm. in the early 1960s when Doctor Who first started, and it was kind of doing a sort of magical version of the travelogue, mm-hmm. as I said. By the time you get to 2005, you've got the internet, you've got you know, 20 years of David Attenborough-style programmes. 
And these things aren't quite as exotic as they used to be for an audience. Hmm. So you have to kind of put a spin on the exoticism or you have to kind of rebalance the three elements, character, location, concept yeah. that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. You have to rebalance those elements. Yes. And I think what Russell T. Davis does that's really clever is, well, twofold. One, in the historicals, he gives you historicals with a character mm. that you know or you think you know and he puts a spin on that character. Yeah. Or in various other historicals, human nature, for example, he puts a spin on the nature of the historical. Mm. So you get David Tennant as a human being, or in The Girl in the Fireplace, you get the Doctor falling in love. There's kind of a spin on the location. Yeah. And then, <clears throat> because he needs to make sure Doctor Who is appealing across all those demographics again, he brings in a sort of teen-friendly love story. Hmm. So he's rebalancing the character at the top. The character at the top is no longer the game show host. No. Now he's the romantic hero instead. Yeah. Which works, which serves exactly the same function while working in a completely different way, if you see what I mean. Yes. I mean, so so what, as I see it, Russell T. Davis has, has recognised the light entertainment appeal yeah. of Doctor Who. But he's retold it for modern television. So instead of having John Pertwee or Tom Baker, this kind of shining, charismatic game show host character, he's, yeah, you're right. He's, he's introduced elements to it that more subtly does it, but embeds it in, in a consciousness. Of yeah. Vision. And it yeah. is more, the modern series is more traditionally drama. Rather than children's drama, there is there is now a dividing line between children's drama and drama that possibly there wasn't in the nineteen sixties, and I think the the light entertainment bits that Russell T Davis brings in, particularly in those first few seasons series, um, is sort of pop culture. So um, so well, pop, the quote what that I music. saved, yeah, can we have it yeah. now. Yeah, you can do. And it's the one I found. Because I think he said this more than once, but I think he said it in places like Doctor Who magazine, but mm-hmm. it wasn't online, so I wasn't able to find it. But I found a version of it that he gave to The Guardian in December of 2009, obviously, when yeah. he was on his way out. Mm-hmm. But he was talking about when he started. I think he was talking about Pop Idol rather than right. X Factor. He says, it was the biggest Saturday night show then, and he's talking about in 2005, or in yeah. 2003 and four and mm-hmm. five when he was making it. He said... We used to gather around at a friend's house to watch the final and vote. And I wanted to do that with drama. Yeah. If we could have the voice at the beginning of the X Factor introducing each episode, I would do it. Yeah. What he's essentially saying is he has to get, in order to make success of Doctor Who on a Saturday night, he has to get that light entertainment factor back into the program. Yes, yes. Now, I believe when he talked to Doctor Who magazine about it the first time, and this could be my memory cheating, but I don't think it is. I think he actually said we had to organise the series along the same line or similar lines as you would organise a series of Pop Idol or Strictly or The X Factor or whatever. Yes. By which he meant what it has to be is a series of challenges. 
I mean, when you watch something like Popeye or whatever, mm. or The Apprentice or any one of those programs, yeah, you automatically will take to a certain person. And what yes. you'll do is, while watching the journeys of all the people, there'll be one who's kind of your favourite. Yeah. what The one that you want to win. And you'll be focused more on their journey. And what Russell T. Davis wanted to do was make Rose the candidate that everybody wanted to win. Yeah. So you'd follow her journey and he would then set her a series of challenges yes. throughout the series that she had to overcome in order to become, well, in the way it works in the fiction, in order to become the bad wolf who saves the day at the end. So I think I think that's one interpretation of what he's said. And I, I kind of agree with that. Well, I think he actually did say that to but, Doctor Who. But also there's, a, there's another side to that. When he's mm. talking about Pop Idol and he's talking about the X Factor, he's talking about series that, that the newspapers talk about for the week. Yeah. And people are talking about for the week. And people, people vote on and have extra programs attached to them. People are proactive. And, with. yeah, essentially he's talking about turning mainstream audience, the mainstream audience into fans. People that actually watch Doctor Who Extra, people, people that, do people that go on the internet, well. go on the internet and look at the Tardisodes or the extra websites. So, I, I, for example, just to yeah. very briefly, if you'd have had Doctor Who Confidential in the seventies, it might have been watched by like twenty five thousand people. Yeah, Doctor Who Confidential in two thousand and five has been watched by one point one million people, and that's that, that's the success of that's the success of Russell T Davis is to recognise how to get the mainstream audience and turn them into fans. Because that mainstream audience have already had that done to them with all these other Mm programmes. So if you watched um, Come Dancing in the 1970s, you didn't pick up the phone and vote. You didn't text. You didn't go online and vote. You just watched it and then there was a winner at the end. And then you forgot about it till the following week. Yes, yeah. But that audience in the late 90s and early noughties mm. have already turned into an audience who watch television proactively yeah. and engage with it on a level whereby there will be those peripheral things, yeah. like confidential, like the little online things, the time it's, codes. It's Doctor Who made by somebody who is recognising what social media will will do to a television show once you've put a television show on the air, he knows that the conversation isn't going to... People aren't going to watch it and put it down anymore. They're going to watch it. And I th- I, I think it's not just fans. At that, it no, gets to a stage where is... the, the golden, the holy grail is it's not just fans talking about the series between episodes. It's the mainstream the, viewers the become Who fans. Page, the official Doctor Who page on Facebook. Mm. I think it's the official Doctor Who page on Facebook. And I haven't looked, but I've seen previously mm. has like six million mm. likes yeah you know this is a casual audience mm-hmm. who even if they don't engage with things like the tardisodes even if they don't engage with things like confidential yeah these are people who've clicked like on a page on facebook yeah. and will get updated about it yeah while the program's not on the air either between episodes or between series and the print the print media things like the radio times the bbc website but also the newspapers they're, they're not a forum for these discussions. They're not a place where these people talk, but they're a reflection of these, these, so newspa- well, newspapers, newspapers, re- as well as a reflection. Popular yeah. newspapers try to reflect what people are talking about. And if news stories end up in the Daily Mail, if the, if say the Daily Mail tries to get a scoop on Doctor Who and their major news article is 
Derek Jacobi is really the master. I mean, it's it's mm. a it's a rubbish spoiler for everybody, but it's great. It's great that it's in there because it's demonstrating that actually this is what people want to read. This is they know well, what people want to read, and this is well. What it kind of does is it reflects the conversation that fans are having, yeah. and prompts that conversation in non-fans, so oh, that the, the non-fans are having the same conversation as the yes, fans. but potentially, or or it's reflecting the conversations they they predict non-fans are having. Like, yeah, but what I, I mean is, yeah, it's kind yeah, of, yeah. It's, it's chicken and egg. Yeah, but, but what it basically is, is those news stories and what have you, all these places are kind of giving a, a landscape where yeah. everybody's having the same conversation, yes. regardless yeah. of their yeah, status yeah, yeah. within yeah. fandom yeah. whatever. And that's why Russell T. Davis was was so successful in his role, I think. But in terms of what the programme's actually doing, it is it is still balancing those three conceits. That yes, keep yeah, 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 yeah. So when Stephen Moffat takes over, mm-hmm. he retools it again. Mm-hmm. So he takes the balance that Russell T. Davis has and he rebalances it again. Yeah. So because at this point, you still got all these conversations going on online, and it's mm. again, it's not just fans. There's still, six million people or four million or whatever it is mm-hmm. who click like on the Doctor Who Facebook page. They still throw out videos. They even throwing them on the TV these days. You yeah. had, you know, in the Russell T Davis era, something like that little Dalek thing that introduced Pearl Mackey. Mm. You know, that would have been an online thing, I guess. Yeah. And now it's actually been shown at halftime in Match of the Day. Yeah. They have a programme that actually goes out on the television for half an hour to introduce Matt Smith. Yeah. And then they do it live with mm-hmm. Peter Capaldi. Yeah. They've, so they've not, there's this sort of impression that people have that these things aren't happening anymore with Stephen no. Moffat. But they are. They're yes. just happening in a slightly different way. Yes. But they're still there. There is a happening. slight, there is a slight sense that Stephen Moffat, over his time in the program, has inherited is he's inherited the audience that Russell T. Davis generated. He's and and he's kind of slightly boiled off the the peripheral mainstream audience, and he's kept the core fan audience and then the fan mainstream hybrid audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's possibly why. I mean, there has been a a, a reduction in the viewer numbers, but that's not necessarily a criticism. I think that's just possibly Russell T. Davis captured a zeitgeist, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. which he, he, he put lightning in a bottle, yeah, which, yeah. which you can't, you can't do you can't all the time. You can't deliberately do that. So these things will, so that, that mainstream audience will come and go, I think. Mm. Um, and that's just like, that's just like a cyclical thing. But to have that, got, have that core a, fan audience yeah. and the mainstream fan audience, that the mainstream fan audience, that hybrid. It's six million people. And that's probably the important audience yeah. that you should be able to, you should be trying. That's what signifies a success rather than a cult success or a mainstream success. You've just got a solid success. But what you've basically got now is a baseline of six million people. Yeah. Yeah, and then if it goes up by a couple of million, when mm-hmm. something like David Tennant and Billy Piper, mm. because series four, for all that it was about Catherine Tate, at the end when it went stratospheric, stratospheric, yes. that was about Billy Piper again. Yeah, that was about will the Doctor get the girl? Mm. And uh, you know, obviously, now it turned out, but yeah. that that regeneration, 
at the end of um, the Stolen Earth yes. and into Journey's End, mm-hmm. what was happening there, I mean, not for everybody, and I'm generalising again, but what was happening there was people weren't worried that David Tennant was going to regenerate mm. because he, they knew he was going to regenerate. Yeah, I don't know whether he'd actually announced that he was leaving. I think time. I think he had. I think when I watched it, yeah, I, think so. I got the sense that yes. was he going to change into David Morrissey? Is David Morrissey going to be the next Doctor? Yeah. We knew David Tennant was was on his way out because this was just before the specials. So there was this kind of that Is that this for real? that yeah. moment was perfectly managed to capture as many. It had Daleks. It had Billy Piper. It had David Tennant. It was it that was the kind of the the apex of of marketing of Doctor Who, and it had the zeitgeist as well. And crucially, I think. What people were worried about then is not whether David Tennant would regenerate mm. because they knew that was going to happen. Yeah. But it was, was David Tennant going to regenerate before he got Billy Piper? Yeah. And I yeah. think that was, yeah. I, I, and I don't think that was necessarily on the surface, but I think that was the underlying sort of theme yeah. of that sort of week of madness. Yes. Was will Tennant and Piper get together? Yeah. Yeah. And is this going to be the thing that stops it? Mm. Much as, you know, the, that wall in um, Doomsday at the end of Series 2. Yes. Was the regeneration going to be the new version of that wall? Yeah. And I don't think they've quite... I don't think they've quite... Well, they, they haven't got that sort of popularity no. again. They've they've increased popularity in America. So so that's... Well, all that, over the world. Yeah. yeah. So the, 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 global, the globalisation of Doctor Who after that. That's probably the key success of of Stephen Moffat, and probably what ultimately doing? what he will be remembered for is yeah, yeah. breaking America. And what's happened with Stephen Moffat in terms of our conversation mm-hmm. is in terms of the retooling of those three conceits. Yeah, is that Russell T Davis took the character element of those three conceits. Which, yeah. you know, we've kind of put at the top of the pile, mm-hmm. the most important thing, and said, right, this is the most important thing. We will make it a romantic mm. character relationship to follow. Yeah. Stephen Moffat, and we, you know, as somebody who watched Coupling, this is kind of what was in the back of my mind waiting for him to do, especially after things like Silence in the Library mm. and The Girl in the Fireplace, which were all about this. It was obvious this was going to happen. It was obvious to me that this was right. going to happen. Instead of making Doctor Who about the game show host or the romantic hero who turns up in a story, mm. he made Doctor Who about the game show host come romantic hero who the story comes to. Right. Yeah. He, instead of... Because people have said oh, Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is too much about the Doctor. Yeah. Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who was every bit as much about the Doctor. It was always, for the first two years, about the Doctor and Rose. Yeah. And then in that third year, it was about, can Martha replace Rose? Mm. And then in the fourth year, it was about the chemistry between Tennant and Tate. Davis's Doctor Who was always about the Doctor. Yeah. But what Stephen Moffat's done is he's made a version of the programme that's about the Doctor 
that isn't about the Doctor's romantic relationship. Yeah. Instead, he's turned it... You know, we all said this when he was taking over, he's going to turn it into a dark fairy tale. Mm. Well, the important thing about the fairy tale is Hansel and Gretel are brother and sister. Mm. So, regardless of the fact that the Doctor's not actually Amy's brother, yeah, he's basically had Clara and Amy within the fiction taking the place of a sibling. Right. So he's made it about... And the, and the way we kind of phrase it is he's made it about two best friends who go off and have adventures. Yeah. But the way I look at it, and it's, I think it's more obvious with Clara, but I think it was there with Amy. Although I think perhaps that's why Series 6 and 7 weren't so successful, was mm. because once Amy's married you've kind of got to the end of that story. Yeah. So then you're kind of treading water, rather. Mm. And in Series 6, he replaced it with the River Song storyline. Yeah. But what essentially he's doing is he's made a relationship that seems, that probably feels to an audience less um, driving mm. than the relationship between a doctor and somebody with whom he might or might not, might not have a romance. Because it's more of a sibling relationship or a yeah. best friend's relationship. Mm-hmm. And a sibling or best friend's relationship is by its very nature going to have something less, something less, something that needs less care yeah. driving it. Mm-hmm. If you've got a sibling, you're a sibling for life. So you don't have to sort of put work into remaining a sibling. If you're in a relationship, you kind of have well, to put work into keeping the relationship. You have to try to avoid killing your sibling. Yeah. <laughs> but what I mean is, if you're in a relationship, yes. if you're in a marriage, yeah. that marriage can end in a divorce. Yes. So you have to put work in it, into mm. it to make sure it doesn't end. Yes. Yeah. So any romantic relationship will kind of automatically need a certain level of work. Mm-hmm. Whereas a sibling relationship obviously needs work because siblings fall out. Yes. But what I mean is, even if you fall out, that person doesn't stop being your sibling. No. And yes. even if you fall out with your best friend, mm. I don't think you necessarily stop being best friends. Yeah. You're just kind of... You know what I'm saying? Yes, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. There's, the thing that was driving Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who isn't the thing that's driving Stephen Moffat's Doctor no. Who. No, And I think, because of the reduced budgets that he had, and because of the changing landscape, because what Stephen Moffat had to deal with that Russell T. Davis didn't really was iPlayer. Right. So Russell T. Davis, iPlayer was in such an infancy, even by the time he got to the end of time, that Russell T. Davis didn't really have to deal with making a programme that, as Stephen Moffat put it, you publish and people catch up with it when they want to. Yeah. So Russell T. Davis puts Doctor Who in that Saturday night light entertainment slot, Mm. whereas Stephen Moffat, whether by conscious choice or by accident, has to repurpose Doctor Who again. Mm. So that it's not the thing that people want to sit down and watch on a Saturday night, so much as it's the kind of thing that people want to go through the menu on iPlayer to find, to catch up with. Yes. Yeah. So, in order to do that, I think one of the things he's done is made the exotic locations slightly less important Mm. and the concepts and plots that drive them slightly more important. Yes. Because if you miss one week yeah. in an exotic location, mm. it doesn't really matter because yes. you're in an exotic location again the following week. Mm-hmm. 
But if you have a concept that drives through an entire series, mm. you kind of feel you have to watch every episode in case you miss something important. Yes. Which goes back to what you were saying about the fact that that entire six million strong audience is now online engaging with it yes, between yeah. the episodes. Although ironically, Stephen Moffat's filmed abroad far more than Russell T. Davis ever did. Oh yeah, because, because that's the, still vastly important. Yeah, but but his filming abroad is a way of cutting costs because they've discovered that actually creating a CGI environment is more expensive than just nipping to Spain and filming in the snow or nipping to Croatia and filming there. And also the other thing is, if you can splash that kind of imagery on the screen at the start of a series or close enough to the start of a series an episode two or an episode three, because people will tend to tune in for the first episode anyway. Yeah. If you can keep them there for the next week or the week after, mm-hmm. then what you do is you use that exotic location, mm. which is the kind of catchword that I'm using for it, yeah. to draw people to the screen, yeah. and then you give them a storyline that will make them want to come back in the week when the episode's set all in the studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's he's kind of... He's taken those three conceits and he said, right, and whether, I don't know whether he consciously did it or whether this is just part of the process, the natural yeah. process of making a television mm. programme. You see which bits are working and will continue to work and, you know, historically have worked. Yes. And you kind of say, right, we need to keep all these three things happening, but because of the way the audience is changing, we have to kind of give a little bit more emphasis to that one and slightly less to this yeah. one. Yeah. And I think and I think like you say, you keep a six million strong core audience. Christ, yes. when has Doctor Who ever had a core audience of six million people? Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I mean obviously it was watched by huge numbers of people mm. in the seventies, but in the way people watch television now, yes. engaging with it, mm-hmm. that's astonishing and phenomenal. Yes. Yeah. And he does it with Sherlock as well. Yeah. You know, so and then he, he makes it a great success abroad. Because again, like I say, when Russell T. Davis came in and he was doing that light entertainment thing of trying to make a programme that people engaged with in a sort of proactive sense mm. and that the rest of television, to an extent, had already done that thing for him. And what he did was he made a programme that wasn't a game show mm. that followed all the rules of game shows yeah. in terms of its off-screen presence. What Stephen Moffat has done is, again, American programmes have done that work for him yeah. and are already telling the kind of stories that he wants to tell in Doctor Who, mm-hmm. albeit in different genres and such yes. like. And this is why I think he gets a head start in America, mm. because he's making the kind of programme that Americans already have a head start on. Yeah. So in exactly the same way as when Rose and the End of the World and the Unquiet Dead turn up on television and people are already sort of pre-programmed to follow a story in the way that Russell T. Davis is telling a story, when you get to something like The Impossible Planet, or even The Eleventh Hour Mm. and what goes on in Series 5, the American audience is already pre-programmed to follow the story Stephen Moffat's telling in the way he's telling it. Yeah. And I think that's a crucial part of his success worldwide. Mm -hmm. And now... and. I mentioned it before. People say, why isn't Doctor Who more like Game of Thrones? But actually, it probably is. 
You, well, yeah. In, to, on that level. Yes. I mean, but probably the Game of Thronesy bit you can see in the last, in the last series. Doctor Who has recognised Game of Thrones because the 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 prequel uh, the prequel to the opening Dalek story, and also the Vikings in in the um the, the girl who whatever I can't I don't know the title yeah. of these. but 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 there is this Game of Thronesy Thronesy feel to it. It's not going. It's never going to be in tone like Game of Thrones. But one thing you can't do is the way Game of Thrones throws its storylines around between different factions. Yeah. So somebody might turn up for two minutes in an episode, yeah. and then the next week yeah. the episode might be all about them. Doctor Who can't do that. No. But then does do that, because then you get Heaven Sent, and then you get Hell Bent. Yes. And previously yeah. you've had things like Good Man Goes, Good Man goes Good to Man War. Goes to yeah, war. yeah. It, Stephen Moffat is doing those things. Yes, yeah. So... Actually, as far as he can push the program in those directions, he actually is. There's a sense at times that I think Stephen Moffat, for instance, deals with the Doctor Light stories much better than Russell T. Davis mm. did, because you don't get the feeling that they're much more blended in. I think you don't get the feeling that the Doctor is absent no, for no. the Doctor Light stories. It's it's just a strange, uh, strange feeling. He also takes the pressure off the central actor. By, as you say, creating more of an ensemble piece and bringing in things like the Silurians and the Sontarans as sort of support. And Kate Lethbridge-Stewart. Kate Lethbridge-Stewart's like unit yeah. and River Song. Um, so, so there are, and Osborne, there are, there are characters that come out, come back to take the pressure off the companion and the doctor. So it's decentralized. But it also, that, sort of reflects the way that Russell T. Davis did it. Mm. When he did that with an ensemble, the ensemble was the family yeah. and the companion. Mm-hmm. When Russell T when Russell T when Stephen Moffat does that with an ensemble, he does that in the way Game of Thrones did it, by having different peoples mm. in different factions who relate to the central characters in different ways. Yeah. So that the 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 story isn't about this family. Mm. The story is suddenly about well, these people here and yeah. these other people here in this other place. Mm-hmm. And so, so it becomes, rather than a really small domestic universe, it becomes a really wide universe, but yes. still a consistent universe mm-hmm. that has uh, continuity. Yeah, yeah. So I think when it comes down to it, and this is the bit where we make the conclusion that it's light entertainment, Yeah. but light entertainment then and light entertainment now two different things Mm -hmm. light entertainment then was putting your feet up on a Saturday night sitting down in front of the television and wanting to be surprised and entertained and amused yes and Doctor Who was surprising and entertaining and amusing and engaged you yes engaged you in many of the same ways as something like a game show would yeah in a game show you have contestants Mm. and you're thinking is the contestant going to get over these hurdles yeah and you have the doctor and the companion, you put hurdles in front of them, are they going to get beyond those hurdles? Yes. And in the modern era, you've got that, and then you have that second level, that background noise of the conversation that's taking place on the internet. Yeah. And what Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat have done is they've taken all the elements that worked in terms of light entertainment in the old days, mm-hmm. and have repurposed for them for the way light entertainment works now, yeah. in which light entertainment 
is for an audience that engages with it proactively. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's a conclusion. Yeah, know? yeah. Great. Well, that's what Doctor Who's for, yes. I guess. And Doctor Who is is also for whoever's watching it at the time. It is a different experience for, as Tom Baker says, it's a different experience for everybody that watches it. Yeah, not for, but, for but every to, age. But to, but, do, every... but to do that, you need to... You need to, in, in order to capture elements. everybody, you yeah. need that thing. And light entertainment, comedy, drama. Well, here's the thing. One of Dad's Army, yeah. for example, just to pick a random example, you still get Dad's Army repeated on like BBC Two or whatever, mm-hmm. wherever now. And audiences now, patently, otherwise they wouldn't repeat it, are still engaging with Dad's Army. Yeah. What is it they're engaging with about Dad's Army? Well, patently, they're not seeing their own experiences reflected. No. So there's something else. Mm. And, if, and that's it. The fact is, Dad's Army is light entertainment. You yeah. can sit in front of it for half an hour, and at the end of half an hour, you may or you may not have learned something, mm. but what you will have been is engaged yes. in a fashion that you know doesn't throw you in mm-hmm. some way, if you know what I mean. Yes. You can watch half an hour of Dad's Army and then forget all about it. Mm-hmm. And same with a game show or a quiz show. You sit down in front of a quiz show and you're engaged with what the people are doing, but at the end of the 45 minutes or however long it lasts, you don't need to retain that engagement. Yes. So you can... A quiz show is something you can switch on and switch off. And I guess... Other than, but for the fans, and these days, like you say, that's kind of melted into the whole thing where yes. the general public are doing that to an extent as well. But it still has to be something that you can switch off. Yes. Because yeah. otherwise, you wouldn't get any casual audience at all. Mm. Like you said earlier, when you said, if kids are going to be watching, you have to make sure it's suitable. Yes. Yeah. If casual viewers are going to be watching, you have to make sure it's something suitable for casual viewers. Mm-hmm. So when you get to the end of an episode, you need it to be something that the fans can go away and talk about. The general audience, sort of that slightly bigger fan bubble, can go away and talk about on Facebook yes. and that the people who don't want to go away and talk about it on Facebook can have got just as much entertainment from as all the other people who are. Right. There we go. All right. So next week, oh, next week's episode 249. Oh, is it? It is. Crikey. The following week, we'll be taking the week off. Mm-hmm. For episode 250. Yeah. So for episode 249, I'm going to make sure, damn sure, we don't take the week off. Mm. And I am setting us a challenge. Oh, good. And I'm not, and this is going to be all of us, as long as everybody turns up, but we've organised it. Yeah. All six of us who've been regular or semi-regular in the last couple of years are going to be here. Right. And the five of you have no idea what the challenge is, (sighs) but I am setting the five of you a challenge. Right. And uh, I'm also setting myself a challenge, and I'm not going to cheat. Okay. So my challenge is a different challenge to you guys. Yes. And your challenge is going to be a surprise, and you're going to find out after we press record next week what it is. Oh, great. Oh, 
I think you'll enjoy it. Okay. okay I'll good. certainly enjoy it right. because it's going to give me an opportunity to be really cruel. Okay. For the entire recording duration. Right. And on that note, uh, I was JR. I was Matt. And we'll speak again soon.